0: Welcome to CareTalk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare business and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. Well, John, Omicron finally seems to be winding down, and the pandemic may become, if we're lucky, endemic. And so this so-called health emergency might come to an end soon. So I think it's time to start talking about what a return toward normalcy will look like. And why don't we start with Medicaid.
1: Well, Medicaid is the state and federal program that protects the poorest among us from being exposed to health care that they can't afford. So for poor people and for those with chronic disabilities, it is a state-federal match program that's available in, I believe, every state right now that is half funded by the states and half funded by the federal taxpayer to provide essential benefits for young moms with kids. And, and, and the disabled, which would be the typical populations, but it can rapidly expand in a time of crisis. And I think that's sort of the interesting thing here, David, is you know Medicaid is one of these programs that's actually a pretty big siphon of state funds, but it's a fundamental investment in making sure that the poorest among us are taken care of from a healthcare perspective.
0: John, the Affordable Care Act uh, dramatically expanded Medicaid. Medicaid was actually one of the main ways that uh, you know, that it relied on to expand the number of people in coverage. And so while you're right, historically, Medicaid has been for you know, single moms. It expanded to be that you didn't, you didn't have to have uh, kids and you didn't have to be the poorest. You could be uh, you know, above the federal poverty level and still get Medicaid. And the result was you, know, you saw a 25 percent increase uh, of Medicaid enrollment from 2013 or so when there was a baseline to 2020. Um, And in the 25, in the the states that did expand uh, Medicaid, which I think is about 35 states, their enrollment grew by more like a third. In the last couple of years of the Trump administration, um, actually, you know, through 2019 anyway, before the pandemic, there was a decline in Medicaid as they made it harder to get Medicaid. But the story has changed dramatically, John, during the pandemic. And I mean dramatically to the extent that I had no idea.
1: Oh, I can't imagine a situation where you had no idea. But even though you don't have an idea, you do have an opinion. I mean, David, this is a this this was a a, a, you sort of suggest that it's some backdoor way to get people to cover to expand Medicaid. It actually makes a great deal of sense if you're a young working poor person uh, or an older working poor person, even without kids. Or a wheelchair with a chronic disability, for example, you still are are can be quite can be healthcare poor. And I think one of the exciting things about the ACA is it took the the, the risk and the burden of chasing healthcare or avoiding um, healthcare services that you needed in order to stay healthy. It took that burden off the back of the working poor. I think the the expansion made a great deal of sense. And I, I think even it, and, and and shouldn't this grow? Shouldn't the number of people covered grow? In the middle of a healthcare crisis, although we don't recognize it now, the midst of the pandemic, the, remember, David, the economy stopped, and so people, many people, were out of jobs. Restaurants were closed. Isn't that exactly the time that the that Medicaid, the program from the poor that's supposed to protect people, should expand?
0: How could I mean? Obviously, this happened. How could you have no idea? Yeah, no, you're right. I did have an opinion about it, even while I was ignorant. But uh, why, should, why should that make me different from anybody else in this country? Uh, what happened, you know, during the start of the pandemic, when a lot of people lost their jobs, is Medicaid expanded. And, and that's what an entitlement program is supposed to do. And in fact, it's one of the things that, that's built in as a, as a buffer. Now, then what happened is the feds decided to give the states extra money if they kept people enrolled throughout the health emergency and didn't make eligibility or enrollment more restrictive. And there was this thing, John, called the Family First Coronavirus Response Act, as opposed to the Coronavirus First Act, which is probably most of the rest of what we've had. And as a result, John- and and and, and remember, David, it wasn't just
1: that they passed this bill, but there's been a lot of messing around with, with, for example, work requirements or eligibility requirements. Or excess paperwork. It's interesting. The Republicans only like paperwork if it's associated with uh uh with 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 restrictions on uh, eligibility for Medicaid funding, and they, they want to reduce bureaucracy everywhere but in the eligibility offices of Medicaid for poor people. But let's 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 not dwell on that. Let's not But talk. as part of that, the I think it was, was eloquently called like, like the FFCRA. It was buried into one of those Let me hear you trillion pronounce. dollar bathtubs of cash that was shoveled out from the federal government to the states. But in that, all of those re- lo- those those mincing restrictions on eligibility and access and many of the specific state regulations that thinned out the number of people who could have access to those health care benefits, uh, the the states who were already running into some budget deficits because the economy st- remember David the economy stopped. The federal government offered a 6.2 percent increase in total Medicaid funding, and that's a lot of yeah. That's a lot of that's a lot of that's bathtubs a, of cash for the of, states. That's
0: a lot of band aids, John.
1: In order to
0: remove
1: any restrictions, uh, or most of the restrictions on Medicaid eligibility and access, and that that you know that made a great deal of sense in the crisis. I guess the question is whether we. Whether, David, you still think it's we've still got a crisis and where, where are we going to go from here? Because now you got a, a, a fairly big number of people uh, in this program and not necessarily you know, income and, and, and
0: budget to take care of it. Well, John, I, I heard you were going to try to pronounce that FFCRA. I'll, I'll take a stab at it, maybe – FIFCRA. I'm glad it doesn't have a K in it, let's just put it that way. So the you know the the enrollment has increased tremendously. There's been something like a more than twelve million people uh, increase in, in enrollment. And in some states it's gone up even even more than that because of certain states Oklahoma, Utah, Idaho, and Nebraska actually expanded Medicaid during this time frame. And frankly, the overall increase that you've seen from this FIFCRA has been as high as what the increase was from the Medicaid expansion under the ACA. And all 50 states uh, seem to have have taken it. Now, some of the consequences are, you know, typically what happens with Medicaid is people kind of come into the program and they get churned in and out as their eligibility may change. Maybe they get a job, maybe their living situation changes. That's been stressful and confusing and leading to care gaps. Now what's happened is you've got people, it's like a one-way valve, people coming in to Medicaid and not going out. And you've got about... A quarter of the country, twenty-five percent of the country, John, enrolled in Medicaid. Unprecedented.
1: I mean, it's it's, it's extraordinary. Now, to be fair, it it, it during, when you're when you're shutting down the economy, it makes sense to cover people. But a lot of the Medicaid restrictions and eligibility. Codes, I mean, there is there are estimates that up to seventeen million people nationally would not be conventionally eligible for Medicaid, and I'm sure the true appropriate number is somewhere between you know, zero and seventeen million. But it does. Yeah, you really nail you, st-
0: you really nail yourself down there, John. Really take a position, you know, zero to seventeen million. I bet I'm, it's probably in there I thought too, my yeah. position
1: was my position was clear. Okay. Uh, but but the, the context for, for our listeners is that you know Medicaid is the fastest growing budget item for states. It's crowding out funding for, for for infrastructure, conventional infrastructure for schools, um, for fire and policemen. We it it we don't have an unlimited amount of funds here to cover the, 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 the significant new obligations. And I, while well, I have a great deal of criticism, for example, that your, your buddies in the Trump administration put in work requirements, work requirements, that is to say you have to have a job or be searching for a job in a documented way in order to stay on Medicaid. Uh, that, all that is historically is a way to erode the eligibility and coverage of like, for example, mothers with kids who may, may may not be the smartest thing for them to do, or it's bu- the eligibility requirements and the paperwork required make it really hard for you to get the coverage you deserve. Um, this is a situation where I don't quite know where you go from here because we have, we have a significant increase in the number of people covered. I think one out of four, one out of five Americans on Medicaid, which is unprecedented, we don't have an easy off ramp for that, although the economy is growing like crazy and we're going to have some of the lowest unemployment and highest increase in jobs available uh, in American history. Um, and I think the states are going to have a really hard time paying for their share, their 50 percent share of these Medicaid health care bills. Well, John, and I, I guess, Dave, since you're the smarty pants here, what do you think the states should do?
0: So there's been surprisingly little uh, outcry or pushback against this uh, government overreach. And the only thing I found was there's this conservative, it's called the Foundation for Government Accountability. And they're suggesting that the states actually you know, stop accepting the extra money because uh, this, they've uh, ceded too much control over a Medicaid policy. Now, what they say is that you know, these, that this uh, FIFRA locks ineligible enrollees into coverage. It really doesn't lock the enrollees into coverage. They can leave any time. It does lock the states in to cover them if they, if they want to be covered. The question on the transition is, what do you do um, now that you need to go and look at, in the case of like Colorado, more than half a million people, uh, 30% of them are at risk of losing benefits since they haven't replied to uh, the outreach and like 40% based on income. Arizona thinks it's gonna take nine months to review everybody. So when they declare the end of the health emergency, which is really only with sixty days' notice. Somehow they got it. The states have to go and scramble, and I think it's going to be actually if they do it this way, kind of a mess and kind of an election year problem. So I don't know what's going to happen once the health emergency is declared over, which may happen pretty soon. Well, I think there's a lot that uh,
1: we're going to have to readjust to, and one of the perhaps a topic for. Another episode would be what happens after a pandemic, because you know what I think people haven't. It's hard to internalize for any of us in the middle of a public health emergency and a pandemic is just how complicated life can be, or how much it's changed post-pandemic. Uh, if you think, go back to the the you know when you're old enough to remember the 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 the, 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 the 1918 flu, David. The, I was going to
0: say, and I remember when the Vikings visited as well. And and, I don't and, mean Minnesota's.
1: And, 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 you know, it led to the roaring 20s, to some significant social unrest, and to a desire to kind of move on to something bigger, better, different um, that caused some real challenges. Um, I've got to say that I don't see um, states, even in a a fast-growing economy environment, being able to afford bills like the ones they're going to see in in Medicaid. And so it's going to be very interesting to see how we navigate the return to normalcy because what ha- tends to happen with healthcare inflation is it lags, you know, commodities, CPI, the, the consumer price index, the kinds of things like food that's going up in price, gas, yeah. which is rocketing up in price. Used cars, and, John, which you wouldn't know anything about, but yeah. The the, the, the the used cars that you're often, you and your friends are selling, uh, but you're uh, we're seeing inflation in nurse Uh, Hourly rates. We're seeing increased demands on doctors and hospitals. It's really hard for me to imagine, given the fact that typically healthcare inflation both runs ahead of the consumer price index and lags it, which is to say, we're seeing some of the highest inflation in years in the consumer staples sector. Uh, Healthcare hasn't caught up, but David, mark my words, it will. And at that point, I just see the states being. Really buried in Medicaid bills. And I and I think that the, the critical thing here is not to look at it just from a budget perspective, but on the needs of a lot of people who are underemployed or unemployed and how they get covered and states don't go bankrupt. It's a it's a complicated three-dimensional puzzle
0: which does not lend itself to a quick and perky podcast. <laughs> oh, John, you're letting yourself off the hook too too easily. I think you've done a pretty good job of laying out some of the issues, laying into me as usual, and left the listeners waiting for more. But they'll have to wait till the next episode of Care Talk, because that's it for this one. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of
1: CareCentrics. If you like what you heard and would like to hear more, please subscribe on your favorite service.